This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Justin Quirk. As COP26 kicks off in Glasgow, this week on The Bunker we're taking an alternative look at the climate crisis, covering the issues that aren't in the media spotlight. We hope you enjoyed yesterday's explainer of the conference itself. If you haven't listened to it yet, be sure to check that out. But today we're getting right into the science, looking at five aspects of climate change that you might not be aware of. Joining me to discuss this is Dr Ella Gilbert from the University of Reading's Department of Meteorology, an atmospheric scientist, a self-proclaimed cloud nerd and Antarctic enthusiast. Hello Ella, welcome to The Bunker. Hello, thanks for having me. Dr Gilbert has very kindly prepped us today with five subjects which we're less likely to be aware of and we'll perhaps not hear so much about during the hot takes and analysis that are going to crowd things out surrounding the summit this weekend. First one on the list is the non-CO2 side of aviation. Now, when we think of flying, we tend to fixate on carbon totals, but that's only part of the story regarding the harm that flying does. So, Dr Gilbert, what else should we be aware of as part of what we think of as the cost of each flight that we take? Yeah, so as you said, I mean, the most common thing that people will think about when you think about the environmental impacts of aviation is the CO2 impacts. And that is important. But there are a whole bunch of other kind of non-CO2 impacts that we do also need to be aware of. So this is things like the emissions of nitrous oxides, uh, which can impact the amount of things like methane, which is a strong greenhouse gas, ozone as well, and also water vapour in the atmosphere. And also kind of particulates that come out of the exhaust of the engine, so soot. And these act like what we call aerosols, which are basically when particles in the atmosphere act kind of like a little seed onto which clouds can form and I mean typically you would see contrails so they're like really linear uh, line-shaped clouds that follow aircraft up high 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 up in the atmosphere and these contrails can actually kind of merge with existing clouds or they can spread out or they can actually kind of cause clouds to form later on because of these the, the action of these seeds And this can have a warming effect, but all of the kind of non-CO2 impacts add up and we think they have probably an impact about twice the size of the CO2 impacts alone. Given what a vast, long-established industry aviation is, are there still things that we just don't know about its impact on our climate systems of known unknowns, as it were? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, a really recent uh, study that tried to comprehensively evaluate all of the non-CO2 impacts of aviation concluded basically that there are some non-CO2 impacts that we just don't have a best guess for. So it's so uncertain that we almost don't really know whether it's positive or negative, so warming or cooling, and we don't know the magnitude of these effects. So this one particularly is the the aerosol-cloud interaction, so how those kind of soot emissions from the engines interact with clouds that are already present, but also how they later on may increase or decrease the amount of cloud and the properties of those clouds. So that could have 
a warming effect probably think it's probably warming but it might also have a cooling effect and one of the perennial challenges for people who are involved in sort of informing the public or rousing them about climate is that it's very easy for people to feel fatalistic about their own ability to shape things but in terms of mitigation and our role as passengers is there much we can do like i mean for example if we all cut one flight a year would that even make a perceptible impact or does it need to be something much more significant that we're all engaging in? I think it has to be comprehensive, but absolutely, if we all cut one flight out a year, that would make a huge impact, wouldn't it? Because, you know, one return flight from London to New York could be a huge proportion of your CO2 emissions yearly. And then if we add into that the fact that the non-CO2 impacts are potentially twice as large as that, that would have a really big impact. So those kind of individual changes can make a really big difference. But I think ultimately it is also about getting airlines and aviation kind of stakeholders to make the changes as well. I mean, unfortunately, aviation is a very stubbornly difficult sector to decarbonize. The technological innovations that will make uh, aviation less carbon intensive might not necessarily actually improve things with respect to the the non-CO2 impacts. So, yeah, I think it's less flying is always going to be good. Secondly, we're looking at the strange mystery of the ice in the Antarctic and the fact that it's behaving differently to that in the Arctic Circle. This is a surprising insight that the ice at the North and the South Pole, um, as you tell us, appears to be behaving differently with the Antarctic in a very different state to that of the Arctic. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, so I think we're probably quite... Uh, used to hearing about the really dramatic decline that we're seeing in Arctic sea ice. So it loses around, you know, an area about half the size of England every year. And since the very early 80s has declined by almost half in terms of its area. But the Antarctic is quite different. And part of that is because the Arctic is an ocean surrounded by continents. So it's only got a kind of, it's got a limited area that it can occupy anyway whereas the Antarctic is a continent surrounded by ocean. So that sea ice can kind of extend all the way until it's too warm for it to actually form anymore. Over the last kind of 40 years or so, sea ice in the Antarctic had been kind of gradually increasing or staying approximately the same. I think that was about a one and a half percent increase per decade recorded. That was until around about 2016, when it kind of plummeted really, really quickly. And then 2016, 17, 18 saw really record lows. The dramatic losses in those three years was equivalent to the losses we've seen in 30 years in the Arctic. It's starting to recover again. So it's really interesting, this one, because it's not really a signal necessarily of cooling. So the sea ice isn't generally increasing in area because temperatures are cooling in the Antarctic. In fact, the the southern ocean that surrounds Antarctica is warming and the atmosphere around Antarctica is also mostly warming. Um, But it's because of changes in the oceans and changes in the atmosphere and the weather patterns that are actually driving this, which is, for me, as a kind of atmospheric and Antarctic climate scientist, really, really interesting. In terms of sort of public information and how much we know, I mean, the Arctic seems to be this constant source of just terrifying news and figures, while we never seem to hear so much from down south. Now, is that just a case of 
geographical proximity or is it also is there more known about the north pole than the south in terms of you know research and how many people are working there do we know one better than the other I think they're related. So yes, it's to do with geographical proximity because, you know, we live in the Northern Hemisphere like the majority of people in the world. And that means that there's lots of research going on in the Arctic and it's, you know, (laughs) relatively easier to get to. So yeah, we know more about the Arctic and also it's changing so, so fast. And like you say, it's quite terrifying, a source of constantly terrifying information that we are justifiably focused on it. The Antarctic is more difficult to observe, it's more difficult to get to, and it's huge. So there are very different things going on in different sectors. So that is part of the reason that we don't hear so much about it. I think the changes are happening much more slowly in Antarctica, um, partly because it's so big. It's kind of when, when we're talking about something like ice loss, it's taking longer for um, losses to be seen in Antarctica, which is obviously a good thing. When it comes to, to sea ice in the Arctic, it's much it's changing much more rapidly. And that means that we're justifiably focusing on it. And we often talk in monolithic terms about the poles. But as you said, it, it's sort of difficult for us to appreciate just how absolutely vast these areas are. When you look at them as research projects, is there much variation in the different regions within them? Or is it just a case of, you know, everywhere is absolutely freezing? I mean, do you get much? (laughs) Are there sort of distinct regions that are behaving differently within the poles? Absolutely. Definitely. That's the case. So within the Arctic, you have the Greenland ice sheet, which is very different to, say, the central Arctic Ocean, which is different again to the kind of tundra landscapes, which we see around the edges on land. Um, Within the Antarctic, we typically separate it into the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the bit that sticks out and is the warmest part of the Antarctic continent. Then we look at the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is Uh, in the west of Antarctica, funnily enough, um, and is warming quite rapidly and losing a lot of ice. People may have heard of, you know, the Thwaites or Pine Island glaciers, which are churning out a huge amount of ice into the ocean at the moment and are quite worrying. And then we also have the East Antarctic, which is generally quite stable and has in fact been, well, was until quite recently, cooling generally or staying very similar when it comes to temperatures. So there are very different patterns, very different trends, very different kind of processes and mechanisms going on in different parts of the Antarctic that are I mean, there are there are different things that are more and more and less important in different sectors. And um, just that minute, have you been there? I have. Yeah, I my my research for many years was on ice shelves on the Antarctic Peninsula. So I was very very lucky. I got to go there and put my ice boots on the uh, ice shelf of Larsen. It's a big question, but how would you describe it to somebody who hasn't been there? I mean, because almost no one on Earth's been there. How would you how would you describe it to someone? It's otherworldly. It's the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. And it's like being on another planet. I think it's the closest you can get to being on the moon or something like that. Is it frightening or? No, absolutely awe-inspiring. Maybe it would be frightening if you were, you know, out there on your own. But because we were involved in research and I was also, you know, mostly staying on the lovely cushy warm base, (laughs) which was great. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I suspect cushy is a slightly relative concept. Yeah, there. There's hot water, there's heating, there's a nice warm bed. <laughs> That's cushy, That's, right? <laughs> sounds amazing. Thirdly, we're looking at the way that climate change exacerbates risk and is potentially triggering conflict. Now, we tend to think of climate change as a scientific and environmental issue, but it also has much more immediate real-world impact in the driving of potential conflict. You've talked about this. I mean, how does this dynamic work in sort of lay terms? So I guess we can think about climate change as being a threat multiplier. So whilst it might not directly cause conflict in itself, it will exacerbate existing pressures. So if you've got X country, for example, which has some existing environmental resources and you then add climate change to the mix, which means there's more pressure on those resources, the tension is going to rise and people who rely on those natural resources are going to experience more tension and that can potentially trigger conflict, particularly if there are already existing kind of political tensions underneath or other kind of inequalities. It seems odd that this isn't more considered because I, mean, I remember reading an analysis maybe 20 years ago that suggested resource pressure was a hugely under-considered factor in, say, the Rwandan conflict in the 90s. But more recently, um, you said there's a possible link between the Syrian conflict and environmental pressures. What was driving that specifically in that case? Yeah, I think a few studies have been done looking at the Syrian conflict. And most of them concluded that although climate change wasn't the primary factor, it may have played a role. My understanding is that there was many years of drought preceding the uh, kind of kickoff of the Syrian conflict, and that this can, you know, it can exacerbate existing tensions. And when people are already under pressure, kind of focused on staying safe, meeting their basic human needs, then if you add in extra kind of climate pressures, then that can cause tensions to boil over and can also trigger conflict in this situation. And on a sort of personal micro level, does the weather just make us more susceptible to irrational or aggressive behaviour anyway? I mean, I know, you know, we sort of talk about, you know, the way people react when it's really hot or full moons or whatever. I mean, it is, do you think there's also an aggravating factor there? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been studies that have shown that in extreme heat waves, um, all across the world. I think there was one in, in the States that showed that violent crime increases in those situations. So if you've got more and more heat waves happening and more and more hot conditions or drought conditions, then that could potentially increase violence. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I always get very hot and bothered if it's really, really hot. Anything above 30 degrees and I, I suffer. So <laughs> if you can relate to that, and if that's happening all the time more and more frequently, then you can see how it might uh, at least contribute to yeah. conflict. Where are the areas in the world which would most concern you in terms of how their situation is likely to be made worse by climate change? I mean, I've seen Central America discussed as somewhere which is facing something of a sort of perfect storm of extreme weather, resource pressure and societal instability. Exactly. And we're seeing more and more migrants uh, travelling from Central America up to the, the border with Mexico and the US. Um, and it's just driving a, a refugee crisis, essentially. It's a refugee crisis in the making. I read a statistic recently that uh, of the 25 most climate vulnerable countries, 14 of them are already experiencing conflict. So lots of these countries have overlapping and intersecting pressures.
number four, obviously the science around climate change is settled in terms of why it's happening in the broad direction of travel. Just last week, a survey from Cornell University of more than 88,000 pieces of peer-reviewed climate research found that more than 99.9% of these papers agree that climate change is mainly caused by humans. So there's no need to relitigate that. But what we do still have are degrees of uncertainty about what will change and by how much in the future. And the number one factor adding to this appears to be the humble cloud. What makes clouds so difficult to observe and factor into your research? Clouds are so complicated and they are so fascinating and they're so hard to measure because, I mean, first of all, they're kind of impermanent, transient things made of water in the form of a gas in the sky. (laughs) So, you know, hard hard to kind of measure that. Also to to observe them directly, you have to fly through them, um, either with a kind of a weather balloon or an aircraft or an unstaffed aerial vehicle of some description. And those are expensive, difficult to launch. Uh, You can't fly them through all types of clouds in all weathers at all times. So there's huge variety in clouds as well and the kind so many different factors coming into it so things like their altitude their composition how much ice is in there versus how much liquids in there the size of the particles the shape of the particles the altitude the temperature all of these different things are playing into what the clouds do at the surface and in the atmosphere and measuring that is really complicated and you said how a large component of the uncertainty is down to something called the Equilibrium Climate Sensitivity, or ECS. What is this and why is it important? So Equilibrium Climate Sensitivity is kind of like a fancy way of saying how much does the temperature of the Earth rise in response to a change in greenhouse gas concentrations. So if we have a a stable equilibrium climate system and we push it or we knock it by adding in extra greenhouse gases, what does it do? What's the response? So a really important part of our Earth's response to changing greenhouse gas concentrations is in the cloud response. I mean, this equilibrium climate sensitivity number has been like the holy grail for so long. In fact, you know, the first estimates of what it might be were around about two and a half degrees, like decades and decades ago, and successive years and years and years of research, including in many different iterations of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports, IPCC, have not been able to really narrow down that value very much. So the the range has been from maybe two to five degrees for a really long time. Um, And only very recently have we started to narrow that range. Last year, a, a paper was put together that brought together loads and loads of different people who've been working on this for a really long time um, to evaluate lots of different types of evidence to find out that it's probably not very low, which is, you know, not really good news. So it's probably not less than about two degrees. It's also probably not really, really high, which was something that was concerning because the most recent climate models that we've been using, we there's a kind of testing suite of of models that get used to predict the future but each kind of version they're called CMIP which is coupled model into comparison project so they have loads and loads of different models basically the newest ones pointed to sensitivities related to clouds that could be a lot higher so because they had better 
uh, better clouds in the model, basically, um, these models were producing much more warming than previous versions of those models. And that was really scary for the community because we're like, okay, well, if we're better simulating our clouds, which is more, you know, consistent with newer understanding, does that mean that we're in for more warming for any given amount of greenhouse gas forcing? Because that that's scary news. But luckily, <laughs> this new new paper suggests that those really high values of ECS, equilibrium climate sensitivity of, you know, five degrees or so are also very unlikely. So it's likely not two, but it's also likely not five, which is great. Yeah, that's a cautiously optimistic note that we can uh, we can wrap that one up on. And finally, our last overlooked climate subject is one which is literally all around us. When we're thinking of our environmental impact, we tend to think of big things like the car we drive or how we heat our homes. But one of the biggest problems is so ubiquitous that we hardly notice it at all, and that's cement. You've said that if the cement industry were a country, it would be the third largest carbon dioxide emitter in the world, uh, responsible for 2.8 billion tonnes a year. Only China and the US have higher emissions. Um, It's responsible for around 8% of all global emissions. What makes cement such a terrible substance and why have we not noticed this? (laughs) I think some people have noticed it, but yeah, it's, it's so ubiquitous that it sort of slips under the radar, which is kind of wild if you think about it. I'm not gonna say that I'm a cement expert, but my understanding is that one of the, the main processes in cement manufacture is when they produce something called clinker. And it's a chemical process which cannot be decarbonized because it's essentially creating CO2 via a chemical process. And then you've also got a huge amount of kind of CO2 and other emissions related to the really high heat processes. So that they require very high temperature kilns to produce and then also uses a whole bunch of other resources like water and things whilst they're producing it so assuming we're not all going to go back to living in wattle and daub houses are there alternatives to this there are i mean obviously you've got the sort of building techniques that use more sustainable materials like timber or um i don't know other sustainable building materials. <laughs> Can you tell I'm not an expert in this? <laughs> um, but there are also um, alternatives. So cement is, of course, a really key ingredient in concrete, which is, as we all know, a very foundational material for all of our construction products. But there are some cool new solutions and technologies like low carbon concrete, and that is definitely an area of ongoing active research. Um, I've even come across a few technologies that are carbon negative concrete. So either they they store carbon in the process of the manufacturing of the concrete, or it kind of sucks up CO2 from the atmosphere as it hardens and on, like stores it in the very structure of the building, which is completely mind-blowing to me. I have no idea how it works, but it's super cool to think that people are coming up with these very interesting and useful solutions to climate change. And with those new solutions, I mean, one thing we're seeing in renewable energy is that in many cases, the market appears to be outpacing government action. You know, huge amounts of money are going to clean energy. The cost of renewables is falling far faster than anyone predicted even five years ago. Do you have much faith that when we talk about things like, you know, new carbon munching forms of concrete buildings and solutions like that, that the 
this market imperative will keep driving things in the right direction in these fields where you know the technology is ready and that hopefully in a few years time we'll all be living in these carbocrete houses I think it's really, really great that businesses are taking the lead and creating new solutions. But I think we do also have to be cautious because technology can't save us all. And the fact of the matter is we do need some transformational change, which has to come from business, has to come from governments, it has to come from individuals. It has to come from all of us, in short, because it's such a huge problem, climate change, that we absolutely have to do everything, everything in our power to tackle it. And it's not just going to be a matter of, oh, well, here's this technological solution. We'll just flip that switch and it'll be fine. We'll carry on doing what we've been doing for so long. It's going to require a really big shift in everything. And that means technological solutions. It means, you know, everybody cutting their emissions. It means uh, reducing our own personal carbon footprints. It means government legislation. It means legally binding uh, legislation at the international and national level. But it also means, you know, businesses uh, meeting their net zero commitments and all of these things. It's absolutely everything that we can do. All the tools that we have in our toolbox um, have to be implemented to actually make a difference. Dr. Ella Gilbert, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And thank you for listening to us. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. We'll be back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.